You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Yeah, it will be funny seeing Anthony Bourdain on TV in that series. Uh, look at her, Mrs. Contribution to Humanity. Always struck me as a decent, decent man with a good head on his shoulders. And also, along this, these lines, I suppose, I've heard very good things about it. James Crook, our cinema reviewer, says don't miss it. August 12th on Rialto uh, will be the New Zealand premiere of the documentary about Robin Williams. So uh, that comes with James Crook's recommendation. He says don't miss it. Later this hour, a man I think brave is obviously a pertinent word. It is apt. His name's Leo Igwe. He's visiting New Zealand. He's a humanist who works for the rights and the protection of the of those that aren't religious and uh, pulls people up on religious and superstitious woo. It's very dangerous to do so, given uh, the cultural and religious forces in the country in which he lives, which is Nigeria. Boko Haram, go try it. Now, if you don't speak out against it, and you allow the extremists, so you allow the extremists to rule. So by keeping quiet, you have more or less tell the extremists that there is a counter force. Mm. So I think that it is a kind of surrendering. And I want to tell you that Muslims suffer more as a result of extremism. They themselves are afraid of speaking up mm. because they know that when they do it, they will kill them. And all the people who are trying to silence the voices of those who criticize Islam, you are doing humanity a great disservice. He's a great speaker and we had him for oh, about 25 minutes. That's going to be the second half of this hour. Uh, skeptical thoughts with Mark Honeychurch. We have the honour of Mark being in the studio uh, this week, usually on the phone from an undisclosed location. Mark, welcome to uh, News Hub. This is how we're set up. What do you think of the digs? Actually, a little bit sparse, not much in the way of posters, but um, yeah, uh, I like the space theme there on the back. Well, it's not a university flat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so welcome along, lovely to have you here, and this is by dint of the Humanist Conference. That's easier to say than the New Zealand Association of Rationalists and Humanists Associated with the Skeptics, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and poor NZARH, uh, it's a, an acronym that's also shared with the Association of Registered Hairdressers. I so, found that out. Yeah. I found that out. I, I went down a a, a wormhole I was going what and is this really really what they're going to be oh no <laughs> it's the other one okay <laughs> okay so tell us about this conference and um, yeah I want to thank you for delivering some stunning guests uh, Leo Igwe later this hour man he's a good speaker isn't he he is. It was just lovely to hear his voice there. My, I left him a couple of hours ago back at the conference venue and we were talking about how sometimes he just gets so excited about what he's talking about that his, his voice races ahead and he gets really loud and um, he said that some people had told him that maybe he needs to calm it down, but I said no, no, actually. No, the way you speak, there's obvious passion in your voice and you really care about what you're talking about, so don't worry about it. It's, yeah. it's good. Well, he's copped hell. He'll tell us about it too. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do in a place like Nigeria, is it? 
No, not at all. And a lot of people that we heard from this weekend have have been through similar stuff. They've they've had the death threats. They've had um, armed people in their houses. It's been uh, yeah, some pretty horrific stuff we've heard about. But what was quite surprising about that is a lot of them just shrugged it off. A lot of them were like, you know, this happens, um, but we're not dead. We're here, so we don't worry too much about but they it. They choose to carry on. It would be easier to take a softer path. Uh, yes, it would be. But obviously, these are people that have an absolute passion for what they do. And um, so the, the weekend actually started locally rather than with some of these international brave people. And I guess in their own way, very brave people, uh, Henare and Eru, who calls himself the heretical Hori. Yeah. They, um, they came along to talk. They talked for about 10, 15 minutes each about their experiences, starting off, as I think a lot of Maori do, within Christianity mm. and then moving away. And it was interesting just how similar their experiences were. For both of them, it seemed to be sometime at university that they decided that actually they weren't Christian, that the Christian God seemed a little bit silly. But both of them, rather than becoming atheist, ended up falling back on the Maori gods mm. and kind of going back to their Maori traditional roots. Um, and it, again, it took a few years for them to, to go, well, I've read a lot about other religions and how they've got their creation myths and how all this stuff I've read is, is not true if I apply this to my own religion to my to my Maori beliefs about our gods kind of tells me that they're not true either and um, it was really good to hear their stories interesting to hear that some of the people are asking you know have you been oppressed do you do you have problems and and both of them were like no there are little issues but actually in New Zealand it's not too bad coming out as atheist and yeah. and the heretical Hori told us a great story about the first time he decided to sit for prayer and how he got the stare and he got little waves of hands trying to get him to stand up but he said he was brave and sweating all over the place and he'd he'd made his stand this was his little bit of rebellion which mm. was uh, it, he was a hilarious guy if, if you ever hear that he's giving a talk somewhere I definitely suggest to go and uh, go and see him. There's a real difficulty with this in New Zealand, and uh, people will bristle about it as well. I, I've experienced it because I've been on plenty of marae and karakia and stayed and travelled around in that world a bit. I had the privilege of doing so. Um, it is pretty heavy still with the the karakia and the. It, I just had to pretend. Yeah, there is there is no opting out. There was, you, um, there's a cultural imperative pretty much in not everywhere and you know different tribal things are different but it is you know you just I have to pretend yeah and and they said there was an assumption you know there there is an automatic assumption that they're married they're at an event obviously they'd want to give a prayer yeah and uh, they have to be polite but say no that's not what we do and uh, you know there are non-religious character etc so mm. there are other ways of doing it but you, you're right majorly it is it is steeped in religion and uh, it'll be good to see more non-religious Maori stand up um, tell everybody who they are and that they don't believe yeah um, but also I think there's uh Understandably, uh, if your culture's been, you know, trampled and rucked uh, on on the ground for for quite a time, hanging on to those things has a special. Um has a special feeling to it. Yeah, and that was something that came out, actually, the idea that so much of Maori culture has been lost, that whatever's left, people do want to hang on, even if it is the Christian bits that were added later. Yeah. The idea was that, you know, it, it's seen as wrong to start losing those bits of culture. Well, ideas of tapu, rahui, and all those sort of things as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'd, I'd love to have a chat with um, Henare. 
That'd be great. Okay. Uh, and uh, Andrew Copson, we heard from him on this program last night. Not everybody listening tonight listened last night, but uh, he was um, another really eloquent speaker um, from the UK. He's the chairman of the Humanists UK. Yeah, so he's got a couple of roles. He's got one role within Humanist UK and another role within IHU, who have now, they're just rebranding themselves to Humanist International. Um, yeah, he was a really good speaker, but he picked a very interesting, obscure topic, and the, the topic was non-religious arguments against secularism. So he was playing devil's advocate to an extent. He was oh. he was telling us what the ideas are for why a state should have an official religion, why there should be a state religion, the reasons why some people argue that it's a useful thing, not from a religious basis of because everybody needs to believe, but other little ideas. And they were interesting. There was only one that he ended up saying was any good. The rest of them were things like the idea that if you have a state religion, it makes immigrants feel more welcome. Because even if it's not their religion, at least it it shows that the state is serious about religion and that accepts religion. So uh, it was kind of an interesting argument. Um, but the real one he I'd said I'd be was, really stoked as I said the state had no say in it whatsoever. So I could get on with my religion as long as it doesn't impinge on anyone else's <laughs> rights. <laughs> Yeah. Wouldn't that be the way? Yeah. So so the one argument he came out with that was, he said, was actually a good one, is that even if you have a secular state, it's not going to be perfect. There no. are going to be problems. Oh, no, nothing's ever perfect. And, you know, that's one reason why a secular state is not going to be the be-all be be and end-all. And I thought that was interesting. He, he was fairly honest about how that's something of a stumbling block. But in the end, even if it's not perfect, it's still probably going to be better than any religious-based state. Well, actually, constitutionally, if you want to see a... Um, uh, secular state. It's the USA. Is it perfect? No. No, it has obviously a lot of its own <laughs> issues going on there. Yeah. Um, who, someone I didn't get to speak to, and she's an amazing story, I know. Gurulai Ishmael. Yeah, so she was great to hear from. So she set up a group called Aware Girls in Pakistan, and it was interesting to hear her backstory. So as a child, um, she said that her father was very into being progressive, being moderate, um, had a lot of friends who were intellectuals, but the father didn't realise that the children actually were not following in his footsteps and they were they were moving towards becoming radicalised um, and apparently they, the parents overheard a conversation Gulalai was having um, about, you know, her desire to be involved in jihad and they realised that for all the work they were doing externally that they'd totally forgotten about their own family and at that point apparently the dad organised for I think she was um, 14 maybe years old, mm. organised for 14 year old Gulalai to meet with some of his his friends and have in-depth conversations about life, the universe and everything. And it was through that that she was brought through to the awareness that um, that going the extremist path is not good and that she really was a moderate at heart. And from there, she realised that it's not enough just for her. And she's gone out and tried to rescue and help a lot of other people to just avoid that uh, that extremist path. Yeah. And this, of course, puts her in conflict with those extremists themselves, those very people, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it's certainly a high-risk thing, and um, she was recently accused of blasphemy, and generally when you're accused of that kind of thing in Pakistan, it comes with a lot of people sending you death threats. So, um, yeah, she's you know she's been through the ring. Uh, well, we should be clear on this. This isn't death threats like you might get on um, a, a lunatic on Twitter or a troll or something. These are death threats that have had 
and continue to have, unfortunately, real repercussions. There are lists of people who have blasphemed and they are getting killed. They are being struck off. They are being hacked to death. Absolutely. So the, these are very much credible death threats that, you know, no reason not to believe that these people are serious. But um, I, I, at first, she was saying at first when, when it came to these death threats, she thought that she would just be quiet because in Pakistan, there's a culture that you shouldn't go to the police, especially as a woman. You should just deal with these things. If your husband's beating you, you just stay quiet. If someone's threatening you, you just stay quiet and you absolutely should go to the police. But apparently, again, her parents said to her, no, you need to do this. You need to report it. We're 100 percent behind you. Um, the only way you're going to get through this is if you're if you're just unflinching and just let the police know everything that's going on okay now catherine low um effective altruism uh now talking about a bad charity scared straight yeah, so Catherine Lowe, I absolutely love her. We've had her, we've had her at a Skeptics conference before, and she does some amazing talks. And they're not just talks; they're very interactive. Um, so, effective altruism is the idea that you can basically figure out how good a charity is, and it might not be perfect. You're not going to have exact numbers, but you can do some kind of rough guesstimate. And there are actually charities out there that all they do is evaluate other charities, and they make lists of how effective charities are. And as you say, with Scared Straight, they're an example of a charity that is absolutely a abysmal. They're in the States. The idea is that they take young potential offenders, people who have been seen to be at risk of ending up in prison at some time in the near future, and they're taken for a day in jail. And the idea is that by seeing how the prisoners are being treated, the conditions they're living in, that's going to scare them straight, that they're not going to misbehave in future. And on the surface to some people, you can imagine it sounds like a good thing, but it turns out that as soon as you look into it in depth, it's not. And in the US, they did a randomized controlled trial where they took a few hundred young kids who were seen as being at risk. Half of them they sent to the Scared Straight program. Half of them they just let do nothing. They just stayed at home, did whatever they were going to do anyway. Mm. Um, and it turns out that the offending rate was lower in the people that weren't sent to the Scared Straight than it was for the ones that were sent on this program. And apparently one estimate was that for every dollar spent on the Scared Straight program, they caused $200 worth of social harm. Oh. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? We'll have a look at QAnon. Uh, fun new conspiracy theories popped up. We'll do that after the break. 20 after 9. Mark Honeychurch in studio. Skeptical Thoughts. Ah, weekend Variety. Wireless. Skeptical Thoughts with Mark Honeychurch and the time we have remaining ahead of hearing from Leo Igwe, uh, a guest in the country. Tell us about QAnon. Yeah. It's a fairly new conspiracy theory. Um, I only found out about it this week from a BBC article. Now, the name, it, it comes from a couple of things. Um, basically, there's a guy that's posting on an internet forum called 4chan. 4chan's well known for people posting all sorts of stuff. There's, there's really no regulation on this part of the internet. And if, if you post anonymously and you're allowed to do that, it just says anonymous as your username. And somebody started appearing at the end of last year on the 4chan board calling themselves Q and posting um, just some really cryptic messages and so this is where the name QAnon comes from signing off as Q it, posting as anonymous poster and so from October 2017 it was the first post and it was called Calm Before the Storm and it was a reference to a quote from a few weeks before that Donald Trump, he was at a military dinner and um, he was asked about how the dinner was going and uh, what's going on and he said well maybe it's the calm before the storm, could be 
Uh, we have the world's great military people in the room. And when a reporter said, what storm? Donald Trump just said, you'll find out in that usual cryptic way he does. And it looks like this guy has taken that on. He, he's run with the idea that Donald Trump was hinting at something. And he keeps posting these really weird cryptic messages. He says that he's got um, a Q security clearance, apparently, which is why the name Q. So top secret Q security clearance within the government. And the kind of messages he's posting are things like, do you believe in coincidences? Blunt and direct time. BDT, think currency, think fireworks. I have no idea what that means uh, whatsoever. It um, just sounds spooky. It and does. That, and that's why people are, ooh, he's, uh, he's not saying much. That's That means he must know a lot. And I think the less you say, the more people will read into it. You know, a good conspiracy yeah, gives yeah. very little and lets everybody connect the dots. So another one that came out said, Mockingbird, HRC detained, not arrested yet. Where is Huma? Follow Huma. This had nothing to do with Russia Yet now that one I, I I had a very quick look into. So HRC is Hillary Rodham Clinton. Mm -hmm. uh, Humor is Humor Aberdeen, who for many years was I think the the chief advisor to Clinton and married to Anthony Weiner of um, putting oh, his right yeah. right Twitter fame. What <laughs> That's the one Twitter uh, Snapchat putting his junk online accidentally and um, so on and so forth. Mm. So this kind of stuff's thrown in a lot. And um, apparently, so Huma Abedin supposedly works for the Muslim Brotherhood. Jay-Z is in collaboration with George Soros. Um, and there's all sorts of weird and wonderful ideas that are coming out of this. So it met, they mention Obama, Clinton, Pizzagate, which obviously is totally debunked, but a ridiculous idea about a very nefarious pizza shop somewhere, I think, in Washington. Uh, but it's gaining ground, despite the fact it's just ridiculous. It, it seems to be that a lot more people are picking up on it. And it made the news this week because at a Trump rally, there were people there holding up big posters oh. uh, so it seems like it's making the mainstream now which is a little bit scary and the posters saying things like where we go one we go all we are Q and the great awakening so th there's a real push for it at the moment Alex Jones has been promoting it even Roseanne Barr who obviously has had her own snafus recently she she messaged on Twitter and asked if QAnon could contact her privately so she obviously believes that QAnon is a real person and not just something nonsense there is a theory out there that it's just LARPing. Apparently it's someone that's into live action role play yeah. and that they are just playing along, that they're enjoying building up this scenario and Who, seeing what, everybody else. If you're else. a kid or a, I don't know, a person, a person on the net and you've created this spooky sounding conspiracy and people are buying it, you know, you should be working in marketing. I suppose. But yes. they've just got it right, haven't they? Yes, it's like a viral marketing campaign. You're absolutely right. It's captured people's attention. And I, I think for me, the other thing about this that I, I see parallels with other ideas is it's one of this new breed of conspiracy theories, one of these overarching conspiracy theories, like the flat earth theory. That started pulling in other stuff, like it's pulling in the idea that the government's lying to you, that NASA faked the moon landings. All of these fit within that theory. But this one is pulling in all sorts of political conspiracy theories. And the idea basically behind it is that it's it's all about Donald Trump mm. and how Donald Trump is he's like a mole he he's taken on the presidency and his whole plan is that he's going to oust the global elite this oh, is why he's there yeah. and so all the weird and wonderful political decisions we see him make where we're scratching our heads and we're not quite sure what's going on there's a grand plan behind the whole thing this is so cool this is I know there are a lot of bad reasons but this is one of the good things about having Trump around it's just nuts <laughs> it makes really good stories.
I am QAnon. Okay. Mark Honeychurch, thank you so much for coming in on <laughs> this for occasion for Skeptical Thoughts. I think Susie Wiles is up next week. But next up, uh, be sitting down and have a listen to Leo Igwe, his story. Um, fighting for a lot of justice rights and um, debunking woo, to say the least, in Nigeria. Leo Igwe will be up next. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Visiting New Zealand for a humanist conference is um, Leo Igwe, amongst a bunch of other luminaries who are lesser known and do amazing work for people's freedom and rights in very difficult circumstances frequently. And I suspect Nigeria might be one of those difficult circumstances. Um, Leo's in the studio with me. G'day, Leo. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to New Zealand. Thank you so much. Yeah. Just for a little background, the, your upbringing all the way to uh, your PhD in African <laughs> studies. Yeah. Yeah, in about a couple of minutes. What, what is your background? Oh, well, I was born in a rural community in southeastern Nigeria, shortly after the Nigerian Civil War. And uh, so I grew up, you know, in a very difficult circumstances. That's when we all unfortunately got to know the word Biafra. Yes, exactly. Um, actually, I come from the Biafra end uh -huh. of the conflict. And um, yes, yeah, so after the war, it was difficult as we were trying to cope with the difficult post-war situation. Then I attended local primary schools and my mother took me to the seminary where I registered and uh, I was training to be a priest. And I was there for 12 years. So I did my high school, studied philosophy, and I was uh, doing, I did theology for about three months, and I decided to leave. I left the training, and um, yes, and I started the humanist movement, and I've been involved in growing the skeptics humanist movement there ever since. Yeah. How did you lose your religion then? I lost it because of, um, as I was growing up, I, I found out that religion was part of our problem in that part of the world believes in the supernatural, believe that people could placate the supernatural, sometimes by sacrificing human beings. Like, well, yes, I found out. I that, found that's out. a big part of Christianity. Yes, I found yes, I found that I found that very outrageous. I found that very outrageous. And I I noticed also there are also traditional practices like ritual killing, like to caste system, mm. like witchcraft accusations. People will wake up in the night, they say they saw somebody in a dream, they blame the person for their misfortune, and the next thing they will go and attack and kill the fellow. So I found that outrageous and i I, I actually appreciated the rationalist, critical thinking evidence-based approach to life so and uh, there was no other movement there was no other platform i found where i could use that to push for social reform except the humanist skeptics movement so was it easy enough to find fellow thinkers fellow travelers it, it wasn't easy it is not easy no. If that is even is even difficult, I know today. But I think that we have made some progress. So initially, I was like alone, and my parents were like, "Okay, I'm sure when you get tired or you get killed or you get attacked at the end of the day, then you you now you now know what you're doing." But I felt also I was an adult, and I just I knew what was good for myself and what was good for the society. So initially, it was hard. Nobody gave me an opportunity. Nobody thought I could succeed. Nobody thought I could you know get more people to join the movement. But I also knew that there was that need. So I was mourned 
driven by the need, not just because there are people who could join me. So, and when I started speaking out, when I started engaging the situations, identifying some of these practices that were harmful, yeah, people started slowly identifying with me. And it's like, yeah, we've been thinking that way. Even though they may not come up openly and say, I'm a humanist about atheist, but they appreciate the atheistic outlook. So, and the groundswell has been there and we, the momentum has been growing. And But still, dangers and so much risk still remain because you cannot be addressing religious issues without facing attacks and threats from religious uh, people and from religious fanatics, especially Muslims mm. yeah, in the country. Yeah, I'll get on to Boko Haram, yep. unfortunately. Yep. Um, but, okay, you're wanting to see... Uh, the improvement of the life and freedoms of people in Nigeria. But it, as you say, it must come as a cost. The social stigmatization of even saying so. Yes. Were you tempted to just keep it quiet? What people of, often tell me is that, look, Leo, why, why, why can't you keep your atheism to yourself? Yes, they think that if you're atheistic, you shouldn't be outspoken. You shouldn't go to the public. You shouldn't publicly say that because they think that, yeah, there's a stigma there. You are going to lose a lot, you know, in terms of uh, political status or in terms of uh, social uh, community if you do that. So there is that. And you, you see, but I also understand that there is also something missing. There's something even my society is hearing, even though there are threats, there are dangers involved. I know that there are a lot of vulnerable people, elderly women, children who are victimized who are tortured, who are killed, just because somebody stronger, somebody in a higher, stronger social position, believes, has this supernatural belief. And, I've, I, and I found out that religion cannot be used as an instrument of oppression. Otherwise, we have to address it, we have to dismantle it, we have to get rid of it. Well, we use the term witch hunt yep. here in New Zealand, uh, but it's very different. It's an actual thing <laughs> yeah. uh, that you've uh, surrounded by, unfortunately, within, in Nigeria, yeah. a fully formed classical actual yeah. witch hunt is yeah. not an uncommon thing. It is, it is an everyday thing. And it takes place in different forms. Okay? It takes place in forms that you go to the street, you see people surrounding either gathered together around a child or an elderly woman. They said, yeah, that woman is a witch and they will beat the person to death. So you, you hear stories of people killing, maiming, I was at I was in one of the cities in Benin. I was at the I was at a radio station doing some program, public enlightenment program, and somebody said that two 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 kids they came out elderly ones they came out and beat their mother. They killed their mother like a like like an animal, just slaughtered the mother. Why? They said that their mother was responsible. They went somewhere and they told them that the mother was responsible for their lack of progress because there is this belief that some people could make you you may not progress in life. And it's not just one story. There are so many cases like that. So it is something going on now, and we are trying to beat it back. Churches are responsible. Traditional healers are responsible. Many uh, clerics, Muslim, Christian, religious clerics, either they are quiet or they tacitly support things like that. So we want to beat, beat it back. But it is very strong. It is tough. But I know we can, we can succeed. It will be tough. It will be dangerous. But at the end of the day, that's how the light. When we talk about enlightenment today, Part of the reason why people talk about enlightenment with a lot of appreciation is how it helped to dispel the forces of dangerous and destructive superstitious strains. It's so, easy for someone to call, accuse you of being a witch and they've got they've, they've sorted their problem. Yeah. Has yeah. this happened? Well, the, what, the, what happens is that they think that you are supporting them. Yes, that's what they have. They think that you are a kind of an agent behind these forces. Because when you defend them, they think that you have something to do with them. 
Well, nobody has actually confronted me, but they have actually seen me as somebody defending them. Whether they have that at the back of their mind, I don't know. But I know that people feel very threatened. Particularly when I go to communities, I try to challenge this belief. Is it easy for you to get around? What kind of threats do you receive? In 2009, I was in, in Calabar, which is one of the cities where we have this problem. And we organized a meeting. And one of the witch hunting churches, there's a church there in Calabar, is led by um, an evangelist, a female evangelist that called herself an ex-witch. And uh, her work now is to go around and identify witches and um, exorcise uh, uh, people and, uh, and all that. So we organized this program to debate and discuss with people and try to dispel this, this misconception that you know, people's problems are caused, are caused by witchcraft. She mobilized her church members and they attacked me and they beat me up and um, stole my things, even took me to court. And you know what they, what they said in court? That, I was, that my work, what I was doing was de denying them of their right to believe in witchcraft. So they actually used the human rights <laughs> mechanism as a... To as a way. Yes, yes, yes. They used that, they used that in court. Oh, so, how sublime. <laughs> so, so that is it. So that's the, that's the extent we are going. And others try to blackmail you. Others try to say you, you are in it because of X, Y, Z, because you are sponsored, you are agents and all that. So, so there, is, there are all sorts of threats. But what happens is that, you know, because it is my society, I understand them. And I know when to look in their face and say, look, you are wrong. You are stupid. You are doing something horrifying. Uh, nobody will accuse me of racism. You know, if you come from an outsider, if you are a white person, they will say, oh, you are a neocolonialist or you are racist. No, I use those strong words because what we are facing is, is, not, is not something you can just easily you know, ignore. It's something that is, is a life and death issue. So we, I'm using all I can to make sure I beat back the tide of witch hunting because it is real. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a fairy tale thing. It is real. And a lot of people are dying, even as I'm speaking to you here. Mm. There have been a lot of problems over the years with um, leadership in, in Nigeria, Sonny Abacha and things like that. Good luck, Jonathan. Or, or a leader that could say, I don't believe in that stuff. Is that possible? Well, if you say you don't believe in witchcraft, okay, and you are in a very powerful position, people could ignore you. But if people ask you, well, but do you believe in God? That is when you might be going too far. Okay. Do you get it? So not believing in witchcraft, people could tolerate that. But when people ask you, do you believe in God or the okay. supernatural, yep. then that is exactly when you start getting into a very, very difficult terrain and where you can get politically, uh, you have political issues yeah. with people. Yeah. Good answer or, or a reflective question is um, which God. But anyway, <laughs> uh, let's talk about that. Yeah. Nigeria has been seen by evangelists and yep. is what they call a great harvest field. It's a fight between, mm -hmm. um, well, we'll get into Islam more mm -hmm. in the north. Okay. But, but the um, evangelists, that yep. just massive, massive churches yeah. in, in Nigeria. Yeah. A battle for their souls, so to yes. speak. Yeah, yeah. The, well, there are so many ways to look at this situation. Number one there is that uh, the contact with the outside world was championed mainly by missionaries who built churches and schools. Right. Christian movement has been very strong, and it has a lot of backing from the West. Because, you see, there is this idea, they say, oh, the West is going secular. No, the West is going secular, maybe in some sense. The West to Africa is still Christian. Because a lot of money, some of these churches are built, you know, uh, with money, you know, donated by Western churches. And I want to tell you, the seminary I attended, where I studied my philosophy, was was not built 
you know, with money collected from the locals. It was money they sent from Rome, from Vatican, right. from Germany, and from Western places. So the donation plates and Amer yes. American yes, and also, churches, yes, yes. mega churches. Foreign money, dollar-driven uh, uh, initiatives. Then we also have the, the one-driven, uh, dollar-driven Muslim initiatives from the East. So Africa is a competing ground, mm. yeah, when it comes to religion. And you know what? It, 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 it's left for Africans now to now dispel these religious forces. And an Africa interest dominated and overwhelmed by religious forces from outside or from inside. So, but that is that one we're not going to look to the West or to the East for that. Africans will have to do that themselves. Mm. It is left for them to allow the continent to be defined by this religious interest and establishment. But there are some people that think that that secular idea mm. is part of um, the, the West. West. You're, you're yeah. chomping, you're stomping all over my yes. bloody culture all over again. Yeah, but, but you see, you see that, is, that is a challenge we're facing. And, you know, when you try to talk about secularism, separation mm. of church or mosque and state, they say, oh, to delegitimize it, they tell you, oh, it's a Western idea. But where did Christianity come from? <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Where, where I'm you know, and all that. So it is yeah. not an argument. Yeah. And so that's why I said, why I know very well that there are a lot of negative impact. There's a lot of very strong interests coming from the East and West. Africans will have to stand their ground and say, this is the limit. Africans will have to erect a wall separating church, mosque, and state. Mm. Good luck with your friends Boko Haram. And I hate to make light of that. It's, I don't think there's a title of an organization that is just so ugh, vile. Yeah. It means books no good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something worse than that. <laughs> Western education. Learning. Western education Western bad. Or education yeah, bad. Yeah. Anything other than Islam. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Boko Haram. Huge headlines, of course, and global mm -hmm. reaction yeah. with the kidnapping mm -hmm. of those girls. Mm -hmm. Good. But then I was just so disappointed. There was a second kidnapping, yeah. and nothing happened yeah. around the world. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, I've already said how much I care about Nigeria. Mm. We don't want to do it again. Mm. There wasn't much, um, much reaction. Yeah. Nigeria fatigue. Yes, good. That was that, that's exactly what I wanted to say. You know, people. The first one went on for a very long time. Initially, people lost hope that they could be the the girls could be recovered or they, you know they could they could be brought back. Now, at this, at some point, we had that some were brought back. Some people were some people in Nigeria were skeptical. They were not sure whether the people brought back were actually the people you know who were kidnapped because there's a whole lot going on in that area in terms of killing and kidnapping. But you know what I want to say? Boko Haram problem, Boko Haram militancy, jihadist Islam is not new. The, this kind of attack has been going on in Nigeria even since I was born. But they, are going, they were going on in several farms. In the 80s, we had a group they called the Might Have Sin. They, were, they also wanted a kind of a pure Islamic Society. That's what, uh, you know this idea of this this um uh, how to call it um, this always people coming up with something. Oh, we need a pure. We need the real, the true Islamic society has been a narrative that has been used to form extremist groups to drive extremism in the country, and a lot of people have been dying. People are being killed. 
in a school in um, I think in either in Jigawa or in Gombe State, a teacher just took a copy of the Quran. They were taking the examinations, and um, the teacher took the a, a student came in with a copy of the Quran when they were taking Islamic religious education. Yeah, to cheat. So the teacher saw it angrily, took the Quran and kept by the side, and kept by the side, you know, so that the examination could continue. I mean, they screamed that you don't, because the belief is that you don't touch, you don't put the Quran on the floor. And you know what happened? They, they screamed, they mobilized and lynched their own teacher. What happened? Nothing! For a book. Just for a book. So Islam has been practiced in such a way that people value a book more than they value human life. That is unacceptable. I want to tell you, it is unacceptable. And we will continue to fight this vicious, virulent form of Islam. Get it? Till we defeat it, till we make sure that it does not define the religious landscape, the conscience of the people. So what we are seeing now in Boko Haram is a more, should I say, a more terrific, more organized uh, you know, form of what has been a very vicious trend of Islam that's been in Kano a man was beheaded in the 90s just for the same reason and when it happens nobody is brought to justice nobody is tried nobody is prosecuted because when you prosecute it it's like you are anti-Islam you see so that is where we are that's where we are we are in a very dangerous position but the world now could use Boko Haram to look into what Nigeria has been suffering silently over the years mm. And we have to resist, not just as Nigerians, not just as Africans, but as a world. All right, a lot of people say, oh, that is the extreme, extreme end. It's just a tiny amount. It's not about Islam. It's about something else. Look, I have had this over and over again. Even an article I posted, some people tell me, oh, that uh, I make sweeping generalizations. I try to paint everybody with the same brush. But look, I want to give you an example. How many Muslims came out to campaign and call for justice for many people who have been killed in Nigeria from blasphemy? In the past three, four years, they have killed around four people. One woman was killed in Abuja preaching. Another woman was killed in uh, Kano. Another one was killed in Niger. I think there were some other similar attacks in Gombe State. They have, we have, have several, several killings associated with desecration of Quran or of blasphemy. How many have come out on the streets to campaign for justice. Nothing happened to the people who perpetrated this violence. Well, they're, so, they're as afraid as everybody else for being attacked by the extremists if they speak up against it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Now, if you don't speak out against it and you allow the extremists, so you allow the extremists to rule. So by keeping quiet, you have more or less tell the extremists that there is a counter force. Mm. So I think that it is a kind of surrendering to the forces of extremism. And in Kano, they took suspects, those who suspected of killing a woman for blasphemy to court. And the government said, no, they had no case to answer. They released them. Nothing happened till today. And again, let me also say this. When we are talking about criticizing Islamic extremism, we are not actually only saying that Islamic extremism affects only non-Muslims. It affects Muslims themselves. And I want to tell you that Muslims suffer more as a result of extremism. So when people are criticizing extremism, they are criticizing extremism to benefit Muslims. Now, all of a sudden, the people who, are, who suffer most from this thing are the people who will now rise up and say, don't. Yeah. So, so can you see how twisted, how distorted the whole issue is? Because they themselves are afraid of speaking up. Mm. Because they know that when they do it, they will kill them silently. But, but, but some people have decided to speak out. 
So that speaking out should continue. And all the people who are trying to silence the voices of those who criticize Islam, you are doing humanity a great disservice. Yes, and I just want to invoke George Orwell okay. and a really good thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people saying, oh, these are the powerless trying to retake power. It's all about power and mm-hmm. politics, mm-hmm. not religion. Mm. Uh, well... If you uh, want to know who has power, mm-hmm. what are you afraid to say? Okay. That's always a good measure. Okay. Okay. Are you afraid to say Muhammad yeah. is not the prophet of God? Yeah. People are afraid to say that. Yeah. Who's got the power? Yeah. That is it. What I want to add here is that, do you know that in Kano today, some Muslims are in jail? Because they belong to a sect, and in their sect they said that their own uh, holy person is more powerful than Allah and the Prophet Muhammad. Mm. They said it was blasphemy. They took them and convicted well, them. It kind of sounds are, they, like it. They, they, <laughs> <laughs> they, they took them and sentenced them to death. They are in jail, as I'm talking to you today. Now, for how long are we going to live under this kind of tyranny? For how long are we going to keep quiet in the face of it all? And when you speak up, they said, oh, yeah, you're Islamophobia. Nobody wants to speak about the phobia driven by Islam and Islamic beliefs. And that is what is destroying the world. What do you make of the word Islamophobia? Another pretext to silence people and not make people to speak up or highlight the excesses, the the dangers, the destructions going on in the world as a result of Islamic beliefs. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's used like a full stop. Yes, argument, yes, that is it. That is it. And, and it, 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 is also a, it is also another pretext to stop people from highlighting the atrocities that, that are being committed in the name of Islam. And that is why I said our problem is not Islamophobia. Our problem is Islam-based phobia. Yeah. Well, you know how difficult it is to hold to the courage of your convictions. Um, what kind of... Uh, success are you having in getting people in Nigeria to say, "Yeah, this is silly." Yeah, uh, I'm with you. You know, what kind of numbers of people? Okay, are actually taking that risk? Oh, yeah, they kind of have to take a risk. It's not yes. easy. Yeah, no yes. idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the fact there is that when I started, it was more dangerous than. I must tell you than it is now. You know why? That's a sign of improvement? Yes. Yes, there is. There is. Things that I never believed could happen, have happened, and much more. And let me give you an example. You know, by the time I started in the 90s, everything was by postage. You know, membership by postage. Mm. Today we have, we don't just have a telephone, we have the internet. So we have moved from what do I call, you know, offline organizations to online. So we have now a lot of people who, because of one reason or the other, cannot come out openly, but who will be supporting you from wherever they are. Like now, in the Sharia, we have a very Sharia, we have a Sharia being implemented, I think, in about 19 states or thereabout. And um, and in those areas, it is really dangerous to come out as somebody skeptical of uh, religion, especially religious beliefs, Islam, to be to be precise. Mm-hmm. And but today, because of the because of the internet, you can network and interact and even chat and have meetings and online and all that. So what to I'm saying at least is, no, you're not the only one. Yes, that is it. So so what I'm saying there is that we, we, we with the benefit, you know, with, with the advent of the internet and um, and the IT and all this online uh, facility, we've been able to grow at a number 
I must tell you. So we're in our hundreds, and we have a very strong AT society now in Lagos, which is in the southern part, because it is, it is easier mm. in the south to organize free-thinking atheist societies than in the north, mm. you know, where uh, Islam and Boko Haram is active. And we don't know the difference. There is no clear line between Islamic fanatics and the Boko Haram agents. So people can be killed by any of them or, or both. So, so, but in the south, it is easier. So we have a very strong atheist society in Lagos. The atheist society of Nigeria, they are doing very well. We have hundreds of very active atheists, thousands of them online, you know, you know due to the internet now. So it is growing. And I want to tell you, it will continue to grow. You know, because the more people get information about uh, life, about the universe, it helps them in changing the orientation. They begin to question. They begin to question what they have been told over the years, and particularly how mistaken these are. And people feel angry yeah. to have been de deceived and to have been told the wrong thing for a very long time. You get it. So, so we we, we have seen that we have seen that kind of um, momentum growing and all that. And I hope it will continue to grow, even though risks and dangers clearly. Remain. There are even risks on going online. People sure. have been jailed, punished, I think executed for yeah. accessing uh, secular, in particular, atheist um, websites. Yes. Recently, in the law school in Lagos, they said that one of the students posted something that was uh, derogatory. And uh, how do they say, what term again did they use? It insulting of Mohammed, you know, the person insulted Mohammed with that post. And they threatened to lynch the person. It's just something online. Now, what is it? Nobody could actually know. How do you know something that is derogatory? Who determines what is derogatory? So there are threats even with the, with the social media. You know, people are still facing threats and all that. But you know what? We will not relent. We are not going to move back. You know, I was telling, I keep telling so many people that, look, Islam, for instance, came to Africa, came to Nigeria, uh, or, or was brought to the country by those who were critical of our traditional beliefs. Being critical of traditional beliefs created the space for them to promote Islam as, you quote, a better belief. Now, you know what they're doing now? Now they're in the majority. Then I said, shut up. Don't say anything critical of Islam. It's a lie. Criticism will continue. Now, Islam, it is your turn. You gave it to the African traditional beliefs. Now it is your turn to take it. You give it, take it. This is your turn. Leah Wigwe. Strength to your arm. Thank you very much. It's my and pleasure. Have a great time here in New Zealand. Good luck. Thank you. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Hello. A special hello. If you have downloaded the podcast, the program is a podcast uh, hour by hour, and also plenty of articles up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. I encourage you to go have a look. Uh, there's the Facebook page as well. Oh, heads up, we've got a fresh... Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh this evening between 11 o'clock and 12. An extraordinary story of these military engineers. They're called sappers. Uh, in disguise as ordinary renovating sort of DIY people. No, oh, no, professionals. Um, plasterers and things like that. They were asked to go essentially undercover to our Soviet embassy during the Cold War in Moscow. But they didn't have the protection because they were undercover. They were trying to get rid of bugs and uh, listening devices, all that sort of espionage that was going on in our embassy in Moscow. Because they weren't officially either embassy staff or military, they had none of the protections of those people that those people normally have. And hence, they caught hell 
And Ian Stobie, one man in particular who was a sapper uh, in Moscow at the time, he caught hell and has been fighting for recognition. Hear his story between 11 o'clock and 12. Right now, though, it's news time, 10 o'clock.